It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's Thursday, June 2nd. I'm Kelly Reese, in for KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. This is your KVMR Evening News. In the midst of a possible historic drought, we hear about the potential and pitfalls of Sacramento Valley's proposed Sites Reservoir Project. That's tonight on the California Report. Keeping our attention on water, California News Service covers the run-up to a U.S. Senate vote that could have dramatic effects on land and waterways in Northern California. Then we'll take a look at local news and weather before Sierra Gold Parks Foundation board member Sid Brown fills us in on June 11th's Humbug History Day. We end with a commentary by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. California's grim drought picture gets worse by the week. The latest numbers show that nearly 12% of the state is facing exceptional drought conditions. That's the most dire category from the U.S. Drought Monitor. Meanwhile, local water agencies are stepping up conservation efforts. Starting yesterday, sweeping outdoor water restrictions covering more than 6 million Southern Californians went into effect. The region's Metropolitan Water District is calling for a 35% reduction in water use in response to the state's drought conditions. Meanwhile, in Northern California, the drought has renewed debate about whether or not to build the Sites Reservoir, a massive reservoir project in the western Sacramento River Valley. To learn more about the potential and possible pitfalls of this project, we spoke with Ann Willis, a senior staff researcher at the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. All right, and so the Sites Reservoir idea has been kicking around in California since the 1950s, right? Since the Eisenhower era. It was abandoned in the 80s. Why did it never get off the ground? Well, the 80s was the time when a lot of reservoir projects were not getting off the ground. And one of the big things that was happening was that the environmental community had gotten really well organized back in the 70s. And once that happened, dams couldn't be built for single purposes anymore, like just water supply or just flood control. They all had to be built taking the environment and their environmental impact into consideration. Okay, fast forward to today. We're in the midst of a drought, third year of a drought. We may be even in a historic mega drought. Governor Newsom and other leaders, other stakeholders have thrown their weight behind the reservoir idea. Is there an argument that it's a necessity right now? There is an argument to be made that we need to reevaluate how we manage our water, but there's a less clear argument to be made that more storage is always the first solution. And this is where a lot of the controversy surrounding Sites Reservoir comes into play. Sites Reservoir has been designed to capture what's being called surplus flows coming out of the stormwater in the Sacramento River so that it can protect some of the storage in some of our larger reservoirs like Shasta. And by doing so, the argument is that we can then use that surplus water for things like Southern California water supply or Central Valley water supply, while protecting water that has bigger environmental benefit in our larger reservoirs. But when that question gets looked at in a little bit more detail, some cracks start to show themselves. For example, we already have 
almost 1,500 large reservoirs in California. So building any reservoir means that you're going to be building it in the 1,501st best place for a reservoir to be located. So that's already a challenge. Another challenge is that in 2021, the American Society of Civil Engineers gave California's dam infrastructure a C- minus for overall dam safety was really the big issue. So we already lack the funding to maintain the dams that we have. So when I say that there's an argument to be made for better water management, we can already make tremendous progress by just operating the dams we already have in a better way rather than building new ones. So your argument essentially is, hey, California, we have all the water infrastructure that we need right now. And it's a question of using that more effectively and more intelligently than building a new reservoir and new dams to contain water in that reservoir. Is, is that right? Do I have that right? That's close. I would say we have underutilized a lot of the water infrastructure that we already have. And one of the things I'm thinking of in particular is groundwater storage and floodplains. So again, the argument for a sites reservoir is that it's going to store this stormwater runoff from the tributaries you know, below Shasta Dam. Well, a really great place to store stormwater is on floodplains and in the ground, in groundwater supplies. So there already is a lot of water infrastructure that may not be what we typically think of. You know, we may instead think of things like dams and other kinds of hard infrastructure. But when we expand our idea of infrastructure to include things like the natural infrastructure that we already have, there's a tremendous amount that's not being leveraged and would provide us with more benefit if we focus there first. Again, that's Ann Willis of the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. And staying on the topic of water scarcity, how do you respond to a drought when you live on an island? Well, residents of Catalina Island, about 20 miles off the coast of Southern California, hope they can parlay their ongoing success with desalination, the process of turning seawater into fresh water. Catalina opened its first desalination plant three decades ago. It was one of the first of its kind. Then in 2016, the island built a second desal plant. And today, both plants together provide about 230,000 gallons of water per day, and that's roughly 40% of the island's drinking water. Kelly Puente has been looking into drought response efforts on Catalina for the Long Beach Post and says there are now calls to add a third desalination plant on the island that would help supply over 50% of Catalina's drinking water. But the technology is still controversial, and a huge uh, project in Huntington Beach was just killed by the California Coastal Commission last month over environmental concerns, cost, energy consumption. And, but to compare the scale, Catalina is, is very small compared to what Huntington Beach was proposed. That was looking at 50 million gallons per day. The largest desalination plant in California and in the U.S. is in the San Diego County community of Carlsbad. It's been in operation since 2015. Desal plants are often criticized by environmentalists for their effects on marine life. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare. Alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area, now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. 
No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And that is the California Report for Thursday, June 2nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. Conservationists are crossing their fingers in hopes the U.S. Senate will pass the Public Lands Act. The bill could significantly impact territory in Northern California and has the potential to get the state one step closer to its goal of conserving 30% of public lands and waterways by 2030. California News Service's Suzanne Potter has more. June is National Rivers Month, and conservation groups are pressing the U.S. Senate to vote on the Public Lands Act, a bill that would add protections to 500 miles of rivers and over a million acres in California. The bill has already passed the U.S. House as part of the Protecting America's Wilderness Act. Graciela Cabello with Los Padres Forest Watch says it would greatly benefit public lands in northwest California, the L.A. area, and the Central Coast. In the Los Padres, it's going to protect over 288,000 acres of wilderness, and it's going to create two scenic areas, safeguard over 159 miles of wild and scenic rivers, and then also adds protection to the Carrizo Plain National Monument. Advocates are also hoping the California legislature will use part of the state's budget surplus to fund climate resiliency projects across the state. In addition, passage of the Public Lands Act would bring California much closer to its goal of conserving 30% of public lands and waterways by the year 2030. Shanna Edberg, Conservation Program Director for the Hispanic Access Foundation, says low-income communities also deserve better access to nature. Having protected nature nearby you can help you be more resilient and can even prevent some of those impacts. She notes, for example, that shade trees in neighborhoods bring down air conditioning costs and healthy soil absorbs more water and reduces flooding. The Hispanic Access Foundation is holding a stargazing event to draw attention to the Public Lands Act on June 24th in Fraser Park, which is part of the area that would receive more protection. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Now let's take a look at local news. The search continues for a missing person last seen Tuesday evening near a kayak on Scotts Flat Reservoir. According to Nevada County Sheriff's Lieutenant Jason Perry, a coordinated land, air, and water response has yet to locate the person described as an adult male. Boats use sonar-type equipment as they traverse the area near the main boat launch and campgrounds where the man was last seen. The Grass Valley Union reports the identity of the person is currently being withheld to provide privacy to the family. Foul play is not suspected at this time. Ubinet reports that at the request of local law enforcement, Nevada Irrigation District will temporarily lower the boating speed limit on Scott's Flat to 5 miles per hour due to the search and rescue operation. Gold Hill California Media Incorporated has acquired the Grass Valley Union and related titles from Ogden newspapers. The 158-year-old daily paper reported on the sale, which also includes Foothill Weekly, Wildwood Independent, The Prospector, Best of Nevada County Magazine, and the annual Nevada County Visitor's Guide. The new owners have newspaper assets throughout the U.S. and Canada. Quote, the union is a fantastic product and will fit very nicely into our plans to grow our presence in California. 
says Canadian newspaper executive Stephen Malkowich. Today, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention placed more than a dozen California counties into the high community level for COVID-19 danger. These include the entire four-county region of Sacramento, El Dorado, Placer, and Yolo counties. That means federal health officials are calling for people in those counties to mask up in public indoor settings. The move into the high classification for Sacramento County also automatically triggers a return to an indoor mask requirement at Sacramento City Unified School District. This reported by the Sacramento Bee. Nevada City kicks off their first Friday art walks of the summer, Friday, June 3rd. The art walks run the first Friday of each month, from June through September, from 5 to 9 p.m. Turning to our regional weather, although today was warm, the National Weather Service forecasts a cooling trend beginning Friday and continuing through the weekend. Hold on to your hats, we may even see rain showers this Saturday and Sunday. There's a chance of precipitation for the northern Sacramento Valley, mountains, and foothills north of Highway 50. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, increasing clouds with a low around 55. Friday, mostly sunny with a high near 75. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, increasing clouds with a low around 42. Friday, increasing clouds as well with a high near 66. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, again with the increasing clouds and a low around 59. Friday, mostly sunny with a high near 84. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Take a step back in time as KVMR's Felton Pruitt speaks to Sierra Gold Parks Foundation board member Sid Brown about the triumphant return of Humbug History Day. Sid fills us in on what to expect at the celebration's 57th anniversary, as the semi-ghost town of historic North Bloomfield dusts off its cobwebs for June 11th. We're talking with Sid Brown, who is a board member for the Sierra Gold Parks Foundation, who, along with the California State Parks, are co-sponsoring Humbug Days up at Malakoff Diggins State Park. Sid, why don't you tell us all about this wonderful event? Okay, well, it's my pleasure. This year, we're actually calling it Humbug History Day, uh, but it is the same familiar, funky, small town event that has been going on, I think, for something like 50, 54 years, perhaps. And it started when the Malakoff Diggins became a state park. I think it was 1964. And after the, it became a state park, there were people that used to live in the town of North Bloomfield, so they would host an annual homecoming. And that's what this event started as, as a homecoming for people that used to live in the town of North Bloomfield. But over the years, it has morphed and changed. And for the last two years, we haven't been able to have this pretty sweet little event. But thank goodness we can have it in person this year. So what it is involved... We have the Clampers, they're going to do a barbecue. We have Lazy Dog ice cream offering treats. And we have uh, demonstrations of gold panning, people in period costume, inviting guests to at least look in the buildings. Hopefully we'll be able to access and come in some of the historic buildings at um, North Bloomfield. We're going to have music, and we're going to have square dancing demonstrations, and we're also going to have the the ever-popular demonstration of the monitor in downtown North Bloomfield, where we turn on the nozzle, and you see the 
impressive jet of water coming out of this old hydraulic monitor, which is the type that was used to do the excavation at Malakoff Diggin. Now, I remember going up to this event about 15 years ago with my kids, and they really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's a very family-friendly kid event. We got something for everybody. Like I said, we got the music, we got the food, we have lemonade, iced tea, snow cones, popcorn. Root beer floats is always really popular. So there's, you know, plenty of food and plenty of activities. Oh, and there's also, we call it the world's shortest parade that um, whoever we can uh, wrangle in, we get to do a little short, maybe one block (laughs) parade of often we have Cal Fire or the Forest Service and the state parks uh, rangers, as well as people in period dress uh, with musical instruments, just uh, parading down Main Street of uh, North Bloomfield Road for about a block. They turn around and often we'll do a repeat. Clampers are involved in that too, so it's very colorful. Why don't you explain to people exactly where this is? Sure. Um, So this is taking place from 11 till 4 on June 11th, that's Saturday, and um, it's at the Malakoff Diggins State Historic Park. And I always like to give people directions of how to get there. If you do Google Maps, it will probably send you the most direct route, which is from Nevada City on North Bloomfield Road, and it just takes you all the way across the river and to the town of North Bloomfield. However, that road is very rough and um, unpaved once you cross the South Yuba River at Edwards Crossing. And we have experienced many people uh, coming uh, with big, wide eyes and their fancy little sports cars as they, you know, humped along uh, this uh, very rough washboarded uh, road for about eight, eight miles or so the other side of the river. So, I always tell people follow Highway 49 North from Nevada City, about 11 miles, and then you turn right on Tyler Foot Road and follow the signs to Malakoff Diggins State Historic Park. It's very well um, signed, and it actually is just as fast to go that way, and it's paved all the way into town. Now, this is a free event, but there is a parking fee. I guess that's the only charge. That's right. And of course, you know, the food and things like that, there are um, little bits and pieces that all goes to support the uh, State Parks Foundation. But there is a day use fee, but it's not really per person, it's per car. So if you carpool, it's very reasonable. And that goes right into State Parks. And it's just their normal day use fee for parking. It's always been a very fun event. So we wish you a lot of success. This is happening June 11th. Give us the title of it again now, the new title. Sure. Well, we're calling it this year, we're calling it Humbug History Day. It used to be called Homecoming, as I said, when people were coming back. But most of those people that used to live there don't, don't come back anymore. So we're just celebrating the history of this place. And um, there's lots of information, lots of really beautiful new um, interpretive panels and some nice trails. So we hope people come out and discover it and have fun with their family. Is there a website people can go to if they want more information? SierraGoldParksFoundation.org has information about this event. We've been talking with Sid Brown from the Sierra Gold Parks Foundation. We wish you a lot of success with Humbug History Day. All right. Thanks, Felton. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk. 
Observations from a Working Poet. After an entire year of trying to coax myself to start painting again, oil painting, not house painting, which is what I really should be doing, I finally started. What a mess it is, and wow, am I terrible at it. Everything looks like an outline instead of a solid object. And still lifes, still lives, that used to be fun and challenging now seem impossible. I feel like my eyes don't work anymore, or my mind, or something. Granted, it's only been three days, but I'm shocked at how inept I became after stopping for a few years. I'm going to try again today because my favorite thing is to paint outdoors on the deck when it's not too hot. A brief window around here, since they're saying 90s next week. I'm not painting en plein air, which is when you paint what you see outside. I'm painting the Yuba from a photograph, but just doing it outdoors. I doubt this has a special name. What I love about painting is the lack of language. I'm pretty worded out these days. About all I can muster on social media is a bunch of heart emojis. So a few hours facing a Yuba photo or some peonies in a green vase and only talking briefly and sternly to Jack is wonderful. My cat, Jack, would like nothing more than to jump straight onto my palette and get oily paw prints all over the deck. I feel relaxed but alert trying to remind my eyes to paint the real peony leaf folding over the edge of the glass and not some idea of a leaf that's stored in my head. This is really hard and such a great lesson for the rest of life. Not that I need any more lessons, thank you. I love mixing colors too and using weird ones I'd never wear or let into the house, like neon green, which amps up a peony leaf in exactly the right way. It turns out I'm remembering things from the several years I painted regularly, too, such as where the light is coming from, determining where the shadows lie, not just the glaze on a vase's lip and side. I made a few hilarious mistakes before I realized that I'd learned this once, and it was why one of my vase paintings was making me dizzy. With painting, you have to keep coming back to reality, to what you actually see. The details confound and frustrate me. I took a painting of petunias in a glass by my cousin Miranda off the kitchen wall and carried it outside for a tutorial. She's a real painter. Her vase and the water in it and the two background colors were all shades of gray and there was lots more paint than I'm using. It was almost gloppy in a wonderful way that made the picture exciting. The brush strokes were obvious and luscious. I like the way stems in water are refracted and look unattached to the part of the stem above the waterline. I have no idea how to replicate that on canvas, but I'll be working on it. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for this Thursday, June 2nd. KVMR gets support from Four Paws Animal Clinic, 
Dr. Susan Murphy and Sue Lester and staff are proud to support KVMR, providing medical, dental, alternative, and surgical services for cherished companions on Searles Avenue in Nevada City. FourPawsAC.com and State of California and the California Earned Income Tax Credit, informing Nevada County's Hispanic population that filing taxes can support the immigration process, provide access to public programs, also yield possible tax credits and returns. More information, mycaleitc.org. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off.